Today on Something You Should Know, how do you keep your glasses from fogging up when you put on a mask to go out in public? Then, understanding DNA, what it is, what it does, and how it catches bad guys. It's a very powerful tool. I think, you know, if, if I did something 20 years ago criminally and I left DNA there, I would be really frightened uh, because the knock is going to come on my door any day now. Also, why is it teenagers can sleep till noon with no trouble, but it gets harder as you get older? And you may not have thought about it, but we've created a fascinating and somewhat bizarre culture around food. Why do we have a culture of particularly young people spending their discretionary income and time on things like avocado toast or $25 bowls of ramen or taking pictures of their food? This is a topic that I have become obsessed with. All this today on Something You Should Know. Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. I'm making you old-fashioned today with the Wild Turkey Bourbon 101. It just really stands up very well in a classic cocktail like the old-fashioned. It has that perfect boldness. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, American, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. Last week, we switched our hosting platforms, the the place where the audio for these podcast episodes actually resides and that you pull them from to listen to. And all of this supposedly should have happened very seamlessly. You shouldn't have known it. This should all be news to you that I'm telling you this right now. But if you did notice anything unusual, and of course the most unusual thing that would have happened is you didn't get any new episodes, but of course if you didn't get new episodes, you wouldn't be hearing this. But if anything is unusual in your feed for this podcast, just let me know. Drop me a line. Mike at somethingyoushouldknow.net. First up today, if you wear glasses or sunglasses, then you have likely had the problem of putting on your mask to go out in public and then putting on your glasses only to have them fog up on you. And there's a simple solution for that. There's a couple of them, actually. First, you need to make sure that your mask fits right. The fog is a result of air coming out of the top of your mask and into that space between your eyes and your glasses. So... To reduce that, have a mask that fits right, and then you can use your glasses to lock down your mask so less air comes up. That should reduce the fog. The bigger thing you can do, and this is after you've made sure that your lenses can take this, is to wash your glasses in soapy water and then let them air dry or wipe them very gently with a soft cloth. The soap actually leaves a film on the glasses that acts as a barrier to the fog, so they won't fog up. And that is something you should know. What do you really know about your DNA? On TV, DNA left at the scene of the crime often solves the crime. Plus, you can get those DNA test kits to find out your heritage and who your ancestors are and what diseases you might be prone to. 
But then DNA also has something to do with your eye color and your hair color and how tall you are. So what exactly is DNA and why is it important to understand it? Here with some answers and insight into the topic is Alan McEwen. He's an educator and scientist and a real expert in the subject of DNA, having studied it for several years. He's author of a book called DNA Demystified. Hey, Alan, welcome. Well, thanks very much for having me. So, in basic, simple terms, what is my DNA? DNA is the the molecule of life. Every living thing carries its genetic information in this molecule called DNA. I've worked with it for now 50 years, ever since I first learned about it and became fascinated with it. So uh, I like to share what I've learned or some of what I've learned over the years with people who share fascination but don't necessarily have a lot of technical background. What is so fascinating about it? If it's just a molecule, what specifically makes it so fascinating? Oh, there's so many things that DNA does that no other molecule does. I mean, you know, we're surrounded by molecules, uh, you know, the, the Earth, the whole planet. But the thing about DNA is that it is the only one that stores genetic information and passes that information from one generation to the next. And that's true whether we're talking about humans or trees or bacteria Uh, Every living thing uses the same molecule, DNA, slightly different form, of course, in each species and each individual, but it's the same molecule that carries our genetic information into the future, and it connects us with our ancestors from the past, going through us as individual bottleneck and on to our descendants into the future. So when you say it carries our genetic information, what is our genetic information? What does that mean? Everything that you are, or everything that a plant is, or some other animal, is a composition of uh, cells, and within each of these cells is, uh, is DNA. The DNA carries information in the form of recipes that tells the cell how to make particular proteins. And it is the presence or absence of these proteins, many of which are enzymes, that make us look the way we look, act the way we act. It gives fur on mammals, it gives fins on fish, and it gives uh, bacteria, for example, pathogenic bacteria, the ability to fight the antibiotics that we develop to fight off those pathogens. So it's an information source, much like a recipe book. So if you look at, say, my DNA, is all of the, whatever it is in DNA, is all of it traceable back to somebody else? Or are there things in my DNA that are just me, that just, they just showed up with me and have nothing to do with my ancestors? We get all of our genetic information from our mothers and our fathers in equal dose, right? 50% from each, almost exactly 50% from each mother and father. Any <clears throat> genetic information has to come through that source, with the rare exception of spontaneous mutations that may occur within us individually. So almost all of our traits, whether they're physical, like our eye color, hair color, blood type, whatever, come from our parents. And sometimes we see behavioral traits, and this is a little bit more controversial because it's not as well explained or or explored, uh, but certain behavioral traits also come through our parents and tracing back perhaps to our grandparents, great-grandparents, and so on. 
but we uh, we can't explain fully exactly how all of these behavioral traits work uh, because behavioral traits are usually complex. They involve not just one little piece of DNA, but many different pieces of DNA working in concert together. So maybe I'm mistaken, but doesn't it seem that sometimes someone will get some sort of disease or, or affliction or condition that is, quote, genetic, that isn't in their past. Their parents didn't have it, their grandparents didn't have it, but now they have it. Is, is, does that ever happen? Yeah, that does happen. Uh, and one of the cases is when there is a spontaneous mutation, as I say, and I was just talking to, uh, to one of my colleagues about this happening in her family, um, that there's no record of this gene uh, appearing in their parents or grandparents or anywhere, but it, but it is there. And with modern molecular genetic technologies, we can actually extract the DNA from a sample of cells uh, from all of the different people involved, from the parents, and sometimes nowadays from the grandparents, and find that, no, the, the gene, altered gene that uh, caused the susceptibility to the disease first appeared in this one person. It did not come from either parent. Now, as I say, that is quite rare. That's a spontaneous mutation, and that's quite rare. Most of the time, when we go back, we find that the gene is actually present in one or sometimes both parents, but it's not expressed, right? So it's, it's lying dormant. Um, if you remember high school biology and you learned about uh, Gregor Mendel, he would have called these recessive genes. And since we have these, these genes that, where it passes on things that are harmful, diseases, whatever, are we near the point, at the point, or will we ever be at the point where we can go in and manipulate those genes and basically cure that illness? Absolutely, and uh, that's a, a very hot area of research right now. Um, things like uh, sickle cell anemia, right, which is uh, prevalent in African populations, um, is, is a very nasty condition. It is genetic. We, we've understood the genetics or the DNA side of it for some time, but we didn't really understand how to, to repair it. Now, in the last couple of years, we've had uh, several different uh, cases where scientists have been using a, a new technique called genome engineering to modify the DNA to eliminate the bad part of the DNA in the gene that gives rise to sickle cell anemia. And those, uh, some of those tests, clinical tests, are, are underway right now. And I just saw the other day that there's some very promising news. But uh, as a scientist, I'll, I'll wait until the, uh, the final results are published in peer-reviewed uh, journal articles before I pass judgment. But um, I think there's grounds for optimism that some of these genetic uh, diseases or susceptibilities to genetic diseases can now be repaired. So we hear talk of DNA in popular culture on TV shows and in the movies. They use DNA to catch the criminal. And, and lately we've heard about actually cold cases being solved by somebody finding DNA through one of these home testing kits through their database. And so, so what is that all about? Well, that's, uh, you know, it's just one of the many applications of DNA and, and DNA information, and that's why I, I spend a fair amount of time discussing this, the, um, the forensic use. I mean, we, we've heard of uh, the CODIS databases used by FBI uh, to try to identify criminals from having left a sample of their DNA, whether it's uh, blood or skin or semen or something at a crime scene, uh, and trying to identify the perpetrator based on a, a DNA analysis of that material. Now, 
that itself doesn't really help a lot if the uh, if the criminal who left that DNA there has no criminal record, if they haven't uh, uh, any reason to have their DNA already entered in the CODIS database, the, the police are stymied. I mean, they have the DNA of the suspect, uh, but no way to identify the person associated with that DNA. So bring that in forward to combine with genetic genealogy, which is a different type of DNA test offered by companies like Ancestry.com or 23andMe that are designed mainly to help people build their family trees. And that type of test, compared to the type of test that the FBI uses, police force uses, uh, to make their CODIS database, those tests are not compatible. You can't directly compare uh, a finding in the CODIS database with a finding in one of the genealogy databases because they're, they're different types. They, they look at different parts of the DNA. So more recently, people have started saying, okay, well, maybe we can uh, find a, a way to convert the information in the genealogy databases to make them uh, more comparable to the entries in the CODIS database, the law enforcement database, and then building a family tree and getting a list of suspects that uh, that seem to fit, and then going back to traditional police work, following these suspects around to get a, a sample of DNA from their uh, discarded uh, coffee cup or cigarette butt or something, and then testing that using the CODIS type of test, comparing that with what they have in their crime scene uh, analysis to finally capture these uh, cold case criminals. So a fascinating area and a lot of work going on on that right now. And that will result, you suspect, in lots of cold cases being solved? Oh, absolutely. And it already is. Uh, a number of cold cases, uh, and there are even TV shows on this now, uh, becoming very popular, explaining how some of these uh, cold case suspects have been apprehended. Um, there's already at least one conviction that I'm aware of, uh, an old cold case uh, out of Washington State. Uh, there are several now uh, in, uh, in court sessions, uh, ongoing trials, and a number of others uh, where the uh, suspect has been apprehended after years of having been cold. So it's, uh, it's a very powerful tool. I think we're only starting to do this, but you know, if, if I did something 20 years ago uh, criminally and I left DNA there, I would be really frightened uh, because the knock is going to come on my door any day now. Well, that's got to be a little unnerving. But I want to ask you how foolproof that is in just a second. I want to remind people that I'm talking to Alan McEwen, and the name of his book is DNA Demystified. Do you have a small business? I do. And I can tell you that one of the casualties of people working from home away from the office is phones. Everybody's using their home phone or their personal cell phone for business, and that can be very inefficient and unprofessional. If you're an entrepreneur or have a small business, you know exactly what I mean. This is why I'm so excited to tell you about Phone.com. Phone.com makes all your phones work together efficiently exactly the way you want. They'll provide you with business phone numbers you can connect to any device, or you can use your existing numbers. And then you can add greetings and automated attendance, music on hold, call forwarding, and you don't have to give out your personal phone numbers for business. 
your cell phone can become an extension of your business phone number. I mean, they have so many features that will customize exactly to your needs. You can also add video meetings and conferencing without the usual hassle it takes to set up video conferences. With Phone.com, it's really easy. And Phone.com voice and video solutions are certified HIPAA compliant. Plus, they have 24-7 live support. Go online now at Phone.com and you can be making calls in minutes. That's P-H-O-N-E dot com. Or you can call them at 877-PHONE-10. And for my listeners, use promo code SOMETHING to receive 20% off your first three months. Again, that's Phone.com or call 877-PHONE-10. Promo code SOMETHING. Check them out at Phone.com and see how they can help you. Support for this podcast comes from Pluto TV. Need an escape? Drop into Pluto TV for a world of free TV. Stream hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and shows all for free. Yeah, free. No subscriptions, no fees. Binge on 24-7 channels of Narcos, CSI, Star Trek, and everything from hit movies to the latest news, comedy, live sports, and more. Download the free Pluto TV app for Android, iPhone, Roku, or Fire TV and start watching now. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free. So, Alan, the assumption is, and the way it's portrayed in TV and, and in the court's when you read about it, is that if I have your DNA at the scene, you're the suspect, there's no question. This is 100% foolproof that this, it couldn't have been anybody else, or it, the chances of it being somebody else is one in 86 billion, and, and so it had to be you. Right. Is that true? It's true to the point of saying, yes, this, you know, if I'm the suspect, I will say, yes, that is my DNA that you found at the crime scene. But that doesn't mean that I'm the person that pulled the trigger. And it also doesn't mean that I deposited my DNA there. And so, you know, I discuss a number of cases where uh, people have shown that there was a secondary transfer. That is, I may have shaken hands with, uh, with somebody who then, you know, afterwards went straight to the crime scene and wiped their hands on the counter and left my DNA on the counter when I was never in that room to begin with. Talk about these home testing kits. I've had some experience with them, and, and they are different. I mean, Ancestry seems to be very focused on, you know, your ancestors. 23andMe also has that medical component that Ancestry does not. Uh, there's probably others. What's, what's your sense of all these things? Well, there's, uh, I call them the big four. There's the, the big four companies that do the direct-to-consumer uh, testing. Uh, as you mentioned, Ancestry is primarily concerned with those who want to build a, a family tree. Uh, they're very good at it. They have the largest database. They will connect you if you donate your, your DNA to them. Uh, they will connect you to other people who share fragments of your DNA and indicate, well, just how closely related are you? Uh, are you a first cousin? Are you a sixth cousin? Um, you know, a great-grandparent, unlikely nowadays, but, you know, so that's what Ancestry does really well. 23andMe, as you say, their focus is uh, more on the uh, the health and medical, but they also do the uh, ancestral stuff as well. Uh, FTDNA, Family Tree DNA, is another one that focuses on the ancestral genealogy, and MyHeritage is, uh, is the fourth one to round out those, what I call the big four. They're all reputable companies, um, in my mind, uh, they do a good job. Their tests are accurate. They're inexpensive, usually less than $100 for a standard SNP test for, 
for these types of um, you know uh, family or basic health and medical. Uh, and I I recommend to people that they choose one of those sites depending on what the individual is trying to achieve. Right? Um, if they are going to go for uh, family history and tr- and tree building, uh, probably ancestry would be my my choice, unless there's some special reason to go with one of the others. Uh, if it's a health or medical, most people aim for 23andMe. Are there places? Because I've heard there are places. Are there places where, if you're willing to spend more money, that the tests are more involved? And if they're more involved, what else do you get that you don't get from those four? There are several different types of DNA tests. The standard ones that we've just been discussing uh, is the uh, uh, SNP test or SNP test, and it takes a a sample of your DNA. It doesn't analyze the entire genome or the entire complement of your DNA, but it looks only at individual bases that that are known to vary from one person to another. And of the uh, 3 billion DNA bases in the standard human genome, one in a thousand, or about um, you know three million of these, are known to vary, and the SNP SNP test they will look at a sample of these six hundred thousand to seven hundred thousand. So it's just a, a snapshot sampling of some of the bases that you have in your DNA. Now these are inexpensive, as I say, they're less than a hundred dollars nowadays, and you know they're very useful for what they do, but there are limitations. So some people want to get a more elaborate test that are more expensive. These could be as simple as a, a Y chromosome test. FTDNA offers a Y chromosome for people who are interested in following their father's and paternal grandfather's line uh, back into into history. They're more expensive. It looks at the Y chromosome exclusively, and it is a, a bigger test. It's more elaborate, more expensive, and so on. And then finally, there's the whole genome test, which is much more expensive, although the price is coming down dramatically, uh, that gives you the entire read of 3.1 billion bases. And quite honestly, I recommend we leave that to nerds like me, because there's really very little usage for the general public or even most specialists to get the whole genome analysis. I know there are people who are very concerned about genetically modified foods, basically messing with the DNA of foods, and the concern is, I guess, that they're not safe, that they're not healthy. What do you think? Well, that's, uh, you know, we've, we humans have been messing with the DNA of, of our food crops and foods uh, for thousands of years. And, you know, corn itself is the best example. I mean, the uh, traditional natural version of corn called teosinte was genetically modified by our Native Americans for thousands of years to give us what we now eat every day as, as corn, what we call corn. Uh, and this is true for virtually all of the crops that we grow. None of the foods that we eat or that we buy from a, a grocery store are genetically the same as our ancestors ate 10,000 years ago. Right? So uh, we've modified those, the DNA of those crops uh, for thousands of years. Um, many of the crops that we eat today didn't even exist 10,000 years ago. Uh, so, you know, DNA modifications have been going on for a long time. Uh, if you're talking about genetic engineering of, of crops, which is a, a controversial area, the dreaded so-called GMOs, then the uh, analyses of scientists who looked into the safety and efficacy of genetic engineering of foods and crops led by the National Academy of Sciences here in the U.S. and conducted like every second year going back to the mid-1980s, 
every single one of those studies has stated that we can't find any difference in the risks associated with genetic engineering of crops and foods compared with uh, the risks of doing traditional breeding with those crops and foods. That is, the risks that we see, it's not that uh, genetic engineering is is, uh, not at all risky, but that the risks we see are the same risks that we see with doing traditional breeding. So, um, you know, we've been eating GMO foods and crops now since the mid-1990s, and there's still not a single documented case of harm to anyone anywhere in the world from eating GMO crops and foods. And when food is altered, can you give me some examples of how that's happened specifically? Well, one of the most popular ones is, uh, let's go back to corn. We're all familiar with corn. Corn that uh, is grown by our farmers in the Midwest uh, can get attacked by caterpillars, a number of different types of insects. And so farmers traditionally had to use a lot of pesticides to control those insects if they wanted to get a a good crop uh, at the end of the season. Genetic engineering comes along and puts a a single naturally occurring gene from a bacterium called uh, Bacillus thuringiensis into the corn genome. That is, it adds a piece of DNA from the bacterium into the corn DNA, and the corn cells are able to read that, that new gene, even though it came from a bacterium, and produce a protein that is toxic to insects, but not toxic to animals, including humans. And as a result of that, the amount of pesticide sprayed on our corn crops has dropped to near zero, and um, it uh, really effectively controls the predation by these caterpillar-type insects in our corn crop. And what's the future of DNA? I mean, are, it, is it, it is what it is, and, and this is the end of the road. We know what we know, and that's it. Or is there some big, fascinating future that you see? Uh, the, it, the future is endlessly fascinating for all of the different applications. I mean, the forensic use, you know, we discussed a bit earlier. There's, uh, you know, solving cold case crimes, I think, is going to be immense. Um, appealing to uh, people for... Uh, medical and health conditions. So many of those, we've just started scratching the surface. Um, At the moment, our technology allows us to transfer one or two genes or modify one or two genes at a time. And that's very limiting because, you know, many of our most important um, diseases and health conditions, cancer and whatnot, Alzheimer's, multiple genes are involved. And at the moment, we really don't have a good handle on understanding how all of those genes work together to give rise to the condition uh, that we're concerned with. So a huge amount of work going on there. Uh, looking at the hum- Human Genome Project and the massive amounts of data, you know, we're doing the data mining thing, that bioinformatics, and trying to put together you know, the many little pieces of DNA spread all over our different chromosomes that work together uh, to give a, a final phenotype or outcome or disease susceptibility. A lot of work being done there and a lot of work to be done there. So, you know, very exciting on the, on the medical side and on the food side. We still have a billion people on this planet that go to bed hungry every night and some of them are in danger of starving to death. Well, you know, we only have so many resources to grow crops on this planet. We're destroying most of them, like in the Amazon rain uh, forest, and the other places we want to preserve as much as possible uh, to produce food to feed all of these people. And in the last 30 years, we scientists have done a tremendous job at increasing the food supply using some of these technologies of genetic modification in crops and foods uh, to produce more food to feed more people. So proportionally, we have fewer 
starving people on the planet than we've ever had, but there's still a large absolute number of people that we want to be able to feed and let the, you know let them live their lives. So opportunities abound there as well. So we're just scratching the surface. Well, I think anybody who's had one of those DNA tests and seen the results gets a sense of the power of all of this and how interesting and how informative it really is. My guest has been Alan McEwen. He is an educator, a scientist, and an expert in DNA. His book is called DNA Demystified, and you'll find a link to that book in the show notes. Thank you, Alan. Well, thank you very much, Mike. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. You know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to GEICO.com to get a quote and see how much you could save. It's GEICO easy. Visit GEICO.com today. That's GEICO.com. What's up, everybody? I'm Graham Bunn. So excited to introduce you to Country Shine, where we're talking all things country music. That's right, and I'm Cameron Irwin, co-host and resident country girl at Tinseltown, here to welcome you to the family. Every Tuesday, we'll update you on the latest in country music, culture, and community. And on Fridays, I'll bring on country musicians and all the biggest names in the game. It's a gathering, and we want you here. You can listen to Country Shine with me, Graham Bunn, for free right here on Spotify. When you think about it, we have a real food culture in our society, and I think in many other places around the world as well. And what I mean by that is we really identify with the food we eat and where we eat it, and also the food we don't eat. I mean, people will wait in long lines to get into some restaurants just to pay really high prices for food you could probably cook at home. And people take photos of their food and post it on social media. They brag that they're vegan or vegetarian or paleo in order to identify not only the foods they eat, but the foods they don't eat. It's this whole love affair with food, but it's not just the food. It's the whole culture around it. And someone who has lived in and researched that culture and is a real expert on it is Eve Turo paul She's author of a book called Hungry. Hi, Eve. Hi, thanks for having me. So explain how you got really into and really obsessed with this whole idea of food culture. I am a millennial. I'm going to start there. I graduated in 2009 at the peak of the recession. And about a year after I found myself living in New York City, one of the most expensive cities in the U.S., getting my master's degree in writing, which is not a lucrative uh, task, Um, And began to notice that I myself was spending my discretionary time and income on food and that those around me were doing the same. And it set off this exploration that I'm now a decade into of looking at uh, really foodie culture and why is it at the rise of the digital age around the same time that we were introduced to things like the iPhone and texting and email and 24-7 notifications, why do we have a culture of particularly young people spending their discretionary income and time on things like avocado toast or $25 bowls of ramen or taking pictures of their food? This is a topic that I have become obsessed with. I am endlessly learning um, through this exploration. 
Well, it is. Uh, this really interests me because it, it, it's always interested me how people are uh, identified with the food they eat. You know, oh, I'm a vegan. I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> I'm a paleo. Whatever, whatever it is, or you know, oh, I don't drink coffee. No, I don't. That, that there is this some sort of identity thing about food, and I and and I've always wondered why people take pictures of their food and send it because it never looks that good in the picture anyway. <laughs> and and this this whole idea of people will spend all this money on food because of where it came from or you know, if you made it at home, it'd probably taste just as good, but and cost a tenth of what it cost you at the restaurant. That we're, we're we're just all wrapped up in this, right? And so this really exactly what you're expressing was my own frustration and curiosity as well. And so for the last ten years, what I've been looking at is, well, what's the why behind these trends? What are the emotional drivers? And the first step for me in developing an answer for that was examining what is it that we all need to feel well just from like the basics of like human well-being. And it turns out that uh, if you look at uh, the number of dominant philosophies coming from psychologists and uh, neurobiologists and religious leaders, all the theories kind of fall into this bucket of three different things that each of us need in order to find well-being. The first is a sense of control and safety. The second is a sense of belonging and community. And the third is purpose, that we can make an impact, that our lives have meaning. And so those things that you're talking about, such as identifying yourself by what you don't eat, um, on its surface can seem silly. But when you dig down deep underneath it, I've at least been able to identify that a lot of these behaviors are driven by things like loneliness and the disintegration of our communities, our traditional religious communities or neighborhood communities, and the need for us to find other ways of affiliating with a group. Uh, and the same thing can be said for food photos. We're not eating a lot of our meals with other people, yet that is a central part of well-being. You know, human beings traditionally have eaten with others. Now that we are alone and we have social media, a lot of people feel that they need to, A, perform in order to get the validations that they're seeking from other people. Um, but also, if you're making this wonderful meal, some people just want to share it, right? They want to be like, hey, look what I did. <laughs> you know, uh, if, if you can't have people come over for dinner, especially right now, right? But even in general with, with people's lives and how busy folks are these days, the fact that people are moving away from family, um, the role of food on social media is a social currency, but also a way to facilitate connection. It is weird, in a sense, that food used to be, well, it, it you ate because it was your fuel, and yeah, it was nice okay. to eat something that was good, and you'd occasionally go out to a restaurant and splurge, but now it's become all-consuming. It's like, it's, it's become a much bigger part of our life. Exactly, yes. And so this is a lot of what I think about is Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which, you know, starts with at the bottom, we need food to survive, which is what you're, you know, you're saying, it's kind of like a basic need. And over the last decade, especially food has imbued itself into every other part of Maslow's hierarchy. So people are using food as a conduit to finding belonging to building their self esteem 
to um, building up their ability to explore all of their potential as a human being. And you're seeing that even right now through the pandemic as people are using food as a way of building community by, you know, making sourdough and posting it online um, and getting comments and input from other parts of a community, be it on Reddit or on Instagram, or people are saying, oh my gosh, I need to, you know, define my days by something. I'm going to start a garden. And that garden is going to give me a sense of meaning and purpose through this time of chaos. And I can see that my efforts are fruitful, both literally and figuratively. You remember when Popeye's came out with that chicken sandwich a while ago, and people were waiting in big lines and fights were breaking out and people were getting hurt. Yes, yes. <laughs> and it seems like that that would never happen 10, 20 years ago. I mean, it just it, there, there's something about that that's, I don't know what it is. It's frightening, for one thing, that people would be that obsessed. I've never had the sandwich, but it must be really good. So, okay, but, but what you're talking about here, right, is this massive cultural shift. And it's not just happening in the U.S. It's happening all over the world. And, you know, I've, I've gone, I spent last, not last summer, summer before in, in Asia doing research on this, in Korea and China and Hong Kong, and I was in Europe and lots of, lots and lots and lots of Skype interviews with folks in South America and uh, on the continent of Africa as well. I mean, this is just universal, um, especially in urban centers. And what I have found is that this obsession with food and this new role that food has in our society is because we are using food as a coping mechanism for the digital age. Now, I have spent a lot of time talking to really smart people who do tons and tons of research on the impact of technology, be it social media or even just the weight of a phone in your hand. And the overriding takeaway from that is that we are experiencing alarmingly high rates of anxiety, stress, depression, and loneliness prior to the COVID pandemic. Um, that is directly tied to the introduction of these technologies into our lives. And so we have a global culture right now that is suffering in so many different ways. And people are using food as a coping mechanism, as an antidote. It is something that is accessible to all of us. It is easily photographed. You participate in it f at least three times a day. Um, and it has become really this, this ongoing form of management with the current age that we live in. And I can guarantee you that the passion about the Popeye's chicken sandwich was not really about the chicken sandwich. It's about something larger than that. It's to me, it's like, well, if you're going to spend your what limited time we have and what limited money most people have on a food experience, then there's there's a good reason for it. And it, a lot of the time it comes back to loneliness or a desire for validation that we're not getting in our current environment or an overwhelm with the world uh, that's fueled by things like email and 24-7 news notifications. And, you know, if you want, I can go through kind of the list of, of maladies that uh, the digital age ha is inflicting on us. But at the end of the day, food, food is, a, is medicine and both for our mental health and our physical health. And it's not just about the food. I mean, for example, there are restaurants where, you know, they don't take reservations and you go and they say, well, it'll, you know, it's a two hour wait or even it's an hour wait for a table. Well, a lot of people don't want to wait an hour to eat dinner, but, but plenty of people do and they'll wait 
And then, you know, six months later, you go back to that restaurant, it's out of business because as hot as it was, somehow now it's not the hot place to go anymore. There is also something to be said about the restaurant becoming the entertainment. And over the last 10 years, it's really shifted from like, you know, going out to eat as a small part of your evening's plans as you were going home from a concert or going to a concert or going to the theater, what have you. Now, the eating experience is the entertainment. It is the show. It's the entire evening. And I think for a lot of people, that two-hour wait time is actually like the their hangout time. It's their core social time. And I found it extremely interesting as well to observe that those people who are willing to wait in those lines, uh, by and large, it's young people in urban areas. Like when I was in Shanghai, I saw this crazy line of people outside a milk tea store. Now you can get milk tea in a gazillion different places in Shanghai, but everyone wanted to be at this one store. I was watching as everyone, after they got the milk tea, the first thing they did was take their phones out and, and take a picture of it. But me, in the meantime, as they were waiting in line, they were just hanging out with their friends. And there were not a lot of people on their phones. They were spending genuine time with other people. Uh, this is really big in Silicon Valley, uh, where people don't generally take a break to enjoy a meal during the week. But on weekends, we'll line up for two to three hours at a brunch spot with their friends. Uh, and there's there, I'm forgetting who said it, but someone said brunch is the new millennial church. And I think that there is something to that. And part of the church service is the two-hour wait. <laughs> well, and, you know, it's interesting, I think, and people have had the experience of they'll go to their favorite restaurant because they like the restaurant. And, and, and it's not just the food. It's the experience of being in the restaurant. And, and proof of that is that when you could go get takeout from that place, it's somehow nowhere near as appealing. Right, because every single restaurant experience, I think that's a great restaurant experience, it's escapist. It is taking you away into another world. You know, every single night, I don't know if you've ever worked in a restaurant, but I have, it's like putting on a theater production. You set the stage, you set the ambiance, you invite the audience in for that time to tell a story through the food and through the decor. And I think people are craving that. They want a sensory experience and something else that I've spent a lot of time looking at as well is what's the impact of tech on us from the perspective of our physicality, uh, the inputs to our senses. I've heard from a lot of people who say, oh gosh, you young people are just overstimulated. And the reality is that we're vastly understimulated because we're really only using our eyeballs and the very tips of our fingers uh, for most of the day. We evolved for a world in which we are guided by our sense of smell and taste and touch and removing ourselves from our desks and from our phones and immersing ourselves in an experience that is so sensory rich as a restaurant is something that each of us does require in order to feel connected to our own bodies and to the earth. And it is pleasurable on all of these different levels. When I think of the people in the food culture that you're talking about, it isn't this big interest in cooking the food. It's just in eating the food and eating it in places where you're seen and where you're with friends and all that. And, and although it is a food culture, 
it isn't that people are dying to like learn to cook. In fact, I've heard that you know more people watch cooking shows on TV than actually cook, and and that people just aren't that into cooking. In fact, I I remember interviewing a cookbook author who said that you know for for people who write cookbooks now, you have to be very specific. Like when, when you would say in, in a recipe in the past, you know, butter the bottom of the pan. Well, they found that when you told people that that didn't know how to cook, they would actually turn the pan over and butter the very outside bottom of the pan and put it on the fire. And, and that caused problems because that's not what butter the bottom of the pan means. Okay, I hadn't heard that story before. That's an amazing an- anecdote that I'm probably going to reuse at some point. Um, I will say that food literacy among youth is on the rise. So Generation Z, uh, which is those who were born between 1996 and 2010, so they're in high school and college right now, they're far more food literate than my generation was at their age or Gen Xers um, and even baby boomers in large part because of food media. Uh, but food media, you're right. It came when it first kind of hit the the zeitgeist. There were far more people watching it for the pleasure of watching it rather than to actually learn how to cook. And this this really was one of my other big questions that led me down this road of research is like, why am I watching Rachel Ray cook something on television that I myself am not going to cook? Like, what is pleasurable about watching this? Because I I knew that it was pleasurable. And what I ended up learning about is how looking at pictures of food or even reading words associated with food, it still stimulates your olfactory and gustatory cortexes. You are still getting a sensory experience from watching that. Uh, There is something just very satisfying about food TV or food porn, right? Food porn are those pictures or gifs of the gooey chocolate cake or grilled cheese or brisket. Um, And there is a worldwide trend of watching people eat. I, for the research for this book project, I went to Korea and shadowed a woman who broadcasts herself eating dinner every single night for something called mukbang, which is extremely popular in Korea. And mukbang means eating broadcast. And this woman, she broadcasts herself eating dinner every night. She has about 200 people who watch her every single evening. Um, By the end of the night, there's about a thousand views on her videos, but some of her videos have over a million views. And it's just her eating like a copious amount of food. And when I was there in Korea, I was able to, to talk with her through a translator, but about the impact of loneliness in Korea, the the loneliness epidemic in particular in Korean culture, and how that's driving um, this desire to watch other people eat. Um, In Korea, sometimes actually for like, if people are really into mukbang, the mukbang broadcast jockey will say, this is what I'm making tomorrow night. Some people will then go out, buy the same thing, prop the phone up on their countertop and eat, you know, quote unquote, with the broadcast jockey. Yeah, well, it does seem that the technology is kind of the ribbon that wraps this whole package of food culture, because without it, you know, you couldn't take pictures and post them of the meal you're eating or the restaurant you're eating at and let everybody know that you are indeed part of the food culture, that that's a big driver of a lot of it. 
Yeah, without a doubt. I think part of the reason why I am so interested in investigating this, though, is how I'm constantly asking myself the question of how can I help myself and others find well-being through food culture so that maybe if you're not participating in these things and you can find a community or you can find a sense of purpose by becoming more involved in these areas of food culture, be it learning to bake or going to dinner with friends or hosting a dinner party or even if that's virtual right now, um, you know, how can... I and others help people find well-being in this digital age because I don't think that email or smartphones or social media are going away anytime soon. So it's like, how do we find ways of coping with this, of mitigating the impacts of this anxiety, of the stress, of the loneliness? Uh, And I think one of the most beautiful ways of doing it is through food and food culture. And it does seem as if technology, the smartphone is really kind of the, the, the string that holds this culture together. You know, it's, it's the smartphone that allows you to take pictures of your food and post it to the world to show what you're eating or what restaurant you're at. And technology seems to really drive this, and it really is fascinating. Eve Thoreau-Paul has been my guest, and the name of her book is Hungry. You'll find a link to her book in the show notes. Thank you, Eve. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate uh, the time and your interest. When you're younger, like a teenager, you could probably sleep until noon with no problem. But as you get older, you may have noticed that that gets harder. It turns out that as we age, it's not so much that we need less sleep. It's just harder to get enough sleep. And that can lead to health problems, according to research. This decline starts as young as in your 30s, and the resulting sleep deprivation can lead to things like memory loss, Alzheimer's disease, diabetes, stroke, obesity, heart disease, and other physical and psychological problems. Nearly every disease killing us later in life has a causal link to lack of sleep, according to the study's senior author, Matthew Walker, a UC Berkeley professor of psychology and neuroscience. Getting more high-quality sleep can make a significant difference in your health. And that is something you should know. Give yourself a subscription to this podcast. A, it is free, and B, it allows you to hear every episode. You'll never miss one, and they will be delivered right to your device. You don't have to come get me. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.